the functioning of the body. We're uh, studying through, if you're part of this church, you know we're going through the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to ask that you open up to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, as we continue to learn this great mystery, this mystery that Paul is unveiling. And for a quick update, if you've never studied through Ephesians and you're visiting us here today, one of the main points that Paul makes in the letter to the church of Ephesus is a Christian's position in Jesus Christ. And it's vital that you as a believer understand your position in Jesus Christ. It's vital that I know as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a sinner saved by grace, that we understand our position. Meaning that, because of God's grace, the moment that you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you stand perfectly righteous in His sight. Because all of the righteousness that you have is the righteousness of Christ placed upon your account. And how perfect is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Flawless, without blemish, perfect. So everything in which is Christ becomes yours as a believer. So in reality, this is your position. Flawless perfection in the eyes of God. Right? Now, a lot of times as we've learned, our practice doesn't always match our position. Amen? Because we're still, we still sin. We're no longer in rebellion from God. But there's still sin in us fighting against the spirit within us. So no matter what, when you mess up in your practice, it does nothing to your position. In other words, when you fall short on a day-to-day -day basis, your position does not lower. Your position is flawless. So what we've been learning is that we want to move in living our life from our position. We don't have to do and do and do to find more favor on the side of God. What we need to do and understand is that we need to leave from, live from our position. Push our position, our practice rather, towards our position. Or live from this place of righteous perfection. When you get that understanding in your life and in your heart, it will change the way you live. So what we've come to learn in the book of Ephesians is that Ephesians is really the theology of the church. If you read Acts, we see the history of the church. Amen? When you read Ephesians, you learn of the church and the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the mystery of God is being revealed in chapters 1, 2, and 3, which are very theological. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are very practical. And we've learned over the weeks that you cannot live out what you do not what? what you do not know or what you do not understand. If you do not understand your position in Christ, you can't live out an effective life that brings glory to Him if you don't have that understanding. So these are the very things we've been learning. In Ephesians, we have Christ's life in the church. See, the church is the only institution that Jesus left on earth, period, the church. By the way, as we study here every Sunday, we do a long introduction for the sake of grasping and understanding where we're at before we get into the verses of which we'll look at today are Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And that should be on your handout. Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13. Bottom line is this, guys. When I know who I am, I know how to live. When you know who you are in Christ, you know how to behave. Amen? When we live from this position, it will transform the way we think. It will transform the way we live. And that we're here for one purpose on this earth, and it's to bring glory to Christ. It's to represent the one who came to redeem us, buy us back to himself. Because he is daily conforming you, conforming me into the image of whom? His son, Jesus Christ. Day by day by day. Now, in chapter 3, we saw last week, as we looked at verses 1 through 7, we're going to spend a little bit more time in verse 7 today, but we realized in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, for this reason. Okay? Now, what reason is that? The reason he's breaking down of the position we have in Christ individually, and he's also breaking down the fact that in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no Greek, there is no barbarian, there's no male, there's no female, we are all what? One in Christ. 
one. Yet we've been given distinct roles, which we'll look at a little later. So in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul refers to himself as what? A prisoner of who? Jesus Christ. Now, he was in chains, chained to a Roman guard and house arrest in Rome. He was arrested five years prior to this letter, which we learned last week. He did not refer to himself as a prisoner of Rome. He referred to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. A prisoner of Christ. Paul's the very prisoner who's unveiling this mystery. The reason he was arrested five years prior to this was for declaring the mystery. That there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, we are but one in Christ. In verse 2 of chapter 3, we see that Paul's the one with the dispensation of grace. We learn that dispensation is a stewardship, a house manager. In other words, someone in biblical times didn't own this plot of land or this house or everything that belonged to this house. He was a servant of the owner of the house. He would take care of the daily provisions for all the workers in that house. He would take care of feeding the family. He would take care of making sure the livestock was taken care of. Delegating responsibilities. Paul is a steward of the mysteries of Jesus Christ. Dispensation. He's been given this dispensation. He's been given this stewardship to teach the body. And in verse 3 it says, Paul is the one who received this specific revelation from Jesus Christ himself. In verse 4, Paul is the one who has written it down for the Ephesians' understanding as well as ours. That we will grasp this. If it's important to God, if it's important to Paul, if it's important to the Gentiles, and it was important to the Jews, and as we'll learn today, it's important to the angels, should it be important to us? You better believe it. It better be important to us. And that's why we have to spend this time in here to grasp and understand the thinking of God. Because when you understand the thinking of God and all the grace that's been placed upon your account, you're then able to live out the very righteousness that he has imparted and imputed to you. In verse 5, Paul is the one who's called to dispense this truth. In verse 6, the truth that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, look at it, of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And that leads us to our study, or I'm at least going to read it, still in introduction here, verse 7, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints... This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden. Hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So Paul's unveiling this mystery. It's the very thing, as I said, that he was in prison for five years prior to this. If you were with us last week, we saw that very arrest and imprisonment in Acts 21 and 22, and you can jot that down and look at it later if you weren't here for that. But you'll see why he was arrested, doing the very thing that he's doing in this letter, five years before in Acts 21 and 22. Now, there's many mysteries, many, that are described in the New Testament. One of the reasons you have notes is so that you can jot down these verses and look them up later, and I'll just read them, so just jot them down. We have the mystery of the incarnation. The mystery of the incarnation in 1 Timothy 3.16. And let me read it. It says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. The mystery of the Incarnation, the fact that God became what? A man. God lowered himself and became a human being with flesh and bones. Mystery of the Incarnation. The Bible also speaks of the mystery of the Kingdom of God. The mystery of the Kingdom of God, um, Luke 8, verse 10. Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the Kingdom. The kingdom of God. 
Colossians 1.26 speaks of the mystery of Christ in, guess who? In you and in me. Colossians 1.26. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The hope, you know we have the hope of glory? If we're believers, we have hope, right? Okay, our hope isn't that we're going to get saved. We should have confidence in that, right? And as we abide in Christ, that confidence is rooted within us. So what is our hope? The hope is that there's a finish line. The hope is the hope of glory. You are saved means you are justified. Today we live in the place of being sanctified. We're set apart immediately, but he's continuing to do a work of conforming us into the image of his son, all of which gives us the hope of glory. Stepping into his very presence. When we see him, we will see him as he is. When we see him as he is, we will then be like him. Our citizenship is not on earth, it is in heaven. Justification, sanctification, glorification. The doctrine of salvation. Amen. Finish line. This is the mystery of Israel's blindness. Um, Romans 11.25, and I'll read that. It says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's many more that are defined through Scripture, but the greatest of the mysteries is the one that we're seeing Paul unveil right here in Ephesians, and it's the mystery that the prisoner himself is unveiling. That two groups with such hatred towards one another, Jews and Gentiles, would become one in Christ. One. That's the mystery. That's the mystery that is unfolding for us. Now, Ephesians 3, as we're seeing Paul reiterate this, we notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, the Gentiles, and he stops. Notice that? He stops. And this thought is actually picked back up in verse 14, because we see in verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees. Paul's intention was to stop and to pray that again we would understand these truths. So really, verses 2 through 13 are all one parenthesis. In other words, he stops praying to say, look, I want you to make sure that you understand this, so one more time let me break it down. And that's what we're in the middle of right now. Are you with me? This is a mystery that was unknown in times past. Okay? Take the Gospel of Matthew, for instance. Okay, this is still introduction. Take the Gospel of Matthew. It was written to Jews, by a Jew, about a Jew, right? Matthew's the writer. His countrymen are the hearers, the readers of it. And Jesus Christ is the subject of it. Written by a Jew, to Jews, about a Jew. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Matthew presents Jesus as the king of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah, right? Matthew quotes the Old Testament 99 times, more than Mark, Luke, or John combined. 99 times. And it documents his claims as Messiah, his genealogy, his baptism, his messages, and his miracles. See, they, they, they saw Christ is coming and setting up his kingdom, right? Now, we know he's going to set up an earthly kingdom, right? That's how they saw him, you see. Their anticipation was that the Messiah would come and release Israel from the bondage of the, of the Roman government and set up his kingdom on earth. But his kingdom was much more broad than that. It was a building a kingdom here on earth that began with the transformation of people's hearts. They didn't see this age in the middle, which is known as the church age. Although, the Gospel of Matthew is the very gospel that first mentions the church, his church. So if you would, keep your finger here in Ephesians and go to Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The church is his church. He's the builder. The church is not built by men. It's not built by committees. It's not built by denominations. And it's not built by what's become very popular today on methods. There's all kinds of methods today of how to reinvent the church. Eh? Christ is the builder. He built it. It's his church. It's built by him, it's built on him, it's built for him, and it will not be taken from him. Matthew talks about the church the second time in Matthew 18, so jump over there for a minute. Now, the context here is church discipline. Verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Jesus is saying, look, if someone sins, they're in sin, they profess to be a Christian, you go to them one-on-one -on -one with the hope of drawing them or bringing them back into repentance. If they don't, Repent, and then continue to fellowship with the brethren. You take two or three with you with the hopes of gaining your brother or your sister back into the fellowship that they will separate themselves from this pattern of sin in their lives. If they don't repent with that, and they're still here, let's say, on a Sunday morning, then Jesus says, you can go ahead and point them out and tell the church that this brother is in sin, and then you treat him as a non-believer until he or she does what? Repents. That's what he's talking about. Now, it's very important, when a church comes together on a church discipline issue, all the church is doing is doing on earth what he's already proclaimed in heaven. This whole kingdom of the keys and that which you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, that which is loosed in heaven will be loosed on earth. What it's saying is, the church is saying, because they've gone through the, the discipline process, this person remains unrepentant, the church is declaring that this person is bound in sin. If you do the proper steps of church discipline, the hope is to gain your brother or sister back into the fellowship that they will repent from this pattern of sin. So, if they're bound in it, you declare it, you say it to the church, you cast them out, you treat him as a non-believer until he repents. If he repents, then you've now loosened him. What you're saying is that we declare you've been loosed from that sin because God's already declared it in heaven. So therefore, what's been loosed in heaven is loosed on earth. What's loosed in earth is loosed in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I've declared this truth from heaven. Because you're my body, you're proceeding with this discipline process that I have ordained in the first place. So therefore, what's loose on earth is loose in heaven. What the Lord is saying is when this person repents of the sin, they're loose now from that sin brought back into the fellowship. It's loose on earth, it's loose in heaven because the one who proclaimed in the beginning anyway was who? Christ himself. We are one with him. We're the body. If people in rebellious sin who profess Christ continue to fellowship with the brethren, we're called to purge that sin, what? Out. A continual purifying of the body. And it begins individually, amen? And then he goes on, what does he say? He says, well, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This is probably one of the most taken out of context portions of Scripture in all the Bible. This has nothing to do with prayer. You know, many times you'll say, well, Lord, we know where two or three are gathered. There you are in our midst, and therefore we pray. The context is where two or three of you are together in agreement over the fact that this brother or sister is in sin, because I've already declared this from heaven. I proclaimed it from above. And you bound, you, you have identified with that which I have proclaimed. They're bound in sin. You identify with that. You cast them out of fellowship. They repent. You bring them back in. You saying that, yes, they're loose from it now. They're back into the fellowship. When two or three of you are agreed on that, I'm right there in the middle confirming it. It's church discipline. So what's the point of all this? The point is this. Jesus loves his church. Go back to Ephesians. Look at chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 25. We're instructed, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. 
that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without what? Blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, as he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord loves and cherishes his church. If you're a parent and you have a kid and they just run amok and you never discipline them, you don't love your kid. The Bible says, what father is there among you who has a son does not discipline that son? And it goes on to say, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines. Any parent who loves their children is not going to go let them run in rebellion, polluting themselves, which will eventually kill them. Amen? God's the same. Jesus loves his church. Acts 20, 28, in regard to leadership of the church, says this, Feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. See, we've been bought at a great price, and we learned that in chapter 1. Amen? You and I have been bought at a great, great price. Adopted into the family of God. Not only does Christ love the church, but because Paul was such a servant of Jesus Christ, such a prisoner of Jesus Christ, he also had a great affection and love for the church. And then that leads us to our study today, beginning in verse 7. We understand that the Gentiles should be the fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Verse 7. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of whose power? His power. 1 Corinthians 3.5, Paul said, Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But simply ministers through whom you believed. Paul referred to himself as a servant, a minister. But a minister means servant or like a busboy. You refer to yourself as a busboy? Busboy of the kingdom? Minister of the gospel? That's how Paul referred to himself. And he was given revelation that you and I will never have till we go home. Right? That's why that thorn in the flesh was given to him, whatever that was. To keep him in a place of what? Lowliness, humility. God made him a minister, guys. You know, it's tough enough when God calls a man to the ministry. He calls you to ministry. It's tough enough, let alone wanting to jump out in it if he hasn't called you to it. Now, we're all called to minister to the body, right? But this role that he had, or like the role of pastor or something like that, you don't want to just jump out and grab it. It's tough enough as it is. It must be a call from God. Because a minister's one task is to simply obey orders. And when you obey the orders as God's defined through Scripture, some of which we looked at this morning, people aren't always going to like you. A minister has one task. It's what? Obey orders serving. You're going to be a servant if you obey orders. See, when one loses their perspective in ministry, you know what you relinquish? Your power. When you lose whose you are and lose sight of whose you are and what your role is as servant, you relinquish power. It's referred to as doing it in your own strength. See, God's not calling for creativity in his church. He's calling for obedience. And Paul was an obedient servant. Amen? This mystery that he was revealing was according to grace. So all the power that Paul had to do it was not his own power. It was granted to him by grace by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. This is the effectual working of his power. See, it wasn't the blinding light on the road to Damascus. Remember that when Paul was converted? It wasn't the frightening voice of hearing Jesus himself that transformed this man. It was the supernatural power of God transforming his heart and calling him into the ministry. Granting him grace to hold this ministry and to reveal the mystery. It was the inward change. Paul didn't jump into the ministry without the call. You got it? Warren Wiersbe says this regarding the call to ministry, and I quote, The work of the ministry is too demanding and difficult for a man to enter it without a sense of divine calling. Men enter and then leave the ministry usually because they lack a sense of divine urgency. Nothing less than a definite call from God could ever give a man success in ministry, end quote. One of my favorite all-time preachers, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in 1954, was preaching at Westminster Chapel in London through the book of Ephesians. And he said, as far as the call to ministry goes, he said this, and I quote, Whatever authority I may have as a preacher is not the result of any decision of my own part. It was God's hand that laid hold of me and drew me out and separated me to this work, end quote. See, the bottom line is this. It's God's divine power. As soon as you begin to exalt yourself, glorify yourself, lift yourself up in places of servanthood, you relinquish all power. And you're doing a powerless ministry. There's many men in ministry who are very talented. And perhaps they're anointed. 
When men take their eyes off of the anointer, they get their eyes affixed on the anointing, you see. And then they begin to serve and exalt themselves and puff themselves up. They become the leader of their ministry, losing sight and mind that they are under in serving the anointer. I could name you TV evangelists, quote-unquote evangelists, who have large groups of people following them. But it's powerless because what they're teaching doesn't line up with this. Amen? If it doesn't line up with this, it's powerless because it's not of God. Paul was submitted and committed as a minister, servant of God. He was a servant of God. Therefore, all his power came from God. He was nothing but a vessel and a channel for that power to flow through. So if you're serving in whatever ministry you serve in, whether you clean the toilets, I don't care what you do. If you do it in your own strength, you relinquish power. And then you fall into competition with God. Anybody want to compete with God? On the outside, you don't. Neither do I. But many times we do. Many times when we love and puff and exalt ourselves that we serve everything else but God, you're in competition with God, and many times it's idolatry. Verse 8. He's a minister, right? Given this effective working of God's power, verse 8, to me, who am the less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The plan needed a preacher. Paul was the preacher that was called by God for this work. He's the preacher. Granted this great, great mystery. If you read the book of Romans, you realize that Paul actually builds this imaginary argument with a legalistic Jew throughout. Through chapter 1 on, he's just throwing out this thinking that he knows a legalistic Jew would have because he himself was at one time what? A legalistic Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Highly educated, highly trained until he was broken by God's grace. So just listen to this. Romans chapter 10, you can jot this down. Paul was this preacher, right? He was the preacher of this divine revelation in chapter 10, verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Because the argument would be, you're expecting the people call, to call on God whom they've never heard this story, by the way. And Paul, so Paul throws it in there. He says, well, just in case you have that argument and you say, how shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Check it out. Paul says this. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, they, have they not heard? And he answers with this. Yes, indeed they have. Yes, indeed, they have. See, responsibility is based on hearing. You're responsible for what you what? No. Many kids grow up in Christians' homes. They hear the gospel over, 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 over again. And they almost, because they don't submit themselves to his authority, become hardened. They become so familiar with what they know, never submitting to the authority of the one who's declared this truth from heaven. You see? They're going to stand responsible if they're unconverted on the day of judgment for everything that I know, for everything they know, and the more you know, the more you're held accountable, right? The Jews were more responsible than anyone. They were first, they were first in salvation opportunity, and they're also first in judgment responsibility. If you sit here week after week or any church for that matter and you've yet to submit yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ and humbled yourself in repentance, you are highly accountable for what you know. You stop coming to church, you're accountable for everything you know up to that point. Come on now. So don't stop coming, because faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. See, the greatest hope in preaching, like for me, my hope is that every week that you come, pat, come here, or any place I preach, you will see past me. You will see beyond me via the sound teaching of God's Word right into the face of Christ. That's what Paul wanted. That people would see past him as a servant. My hope is that you will see past the dude standing here right into the, right into the face of God through his Word. And if the Word's not taught, you're not going to see through the dude who's standing here. 
Paul's preaching was the unsearchable riches of Christ, which are truths about Him, Christ, and all that means to the believer. Now, there's no bottom to these riches, right? Because they are, as we see, unsearchable riches. Remember in chapter 1, verse 7, look at chapter 1 in, in, in Ephesians. Remember this from a few weeks back. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to what? The riches of His grace. Notice the word according to the riches of His grace. How deep are the riches of God's grace? They're unfathomable. They're unreachable. See, a rich man will come in, as I used an illustration a few weeks ago, if you ask a rich man who has tons of money to support your ministry, he's going to give you out of his riches. Right? He's not going to give you everything he has. He's going to give you off the top. He can give you $250,000. But he's going to still give you out of his riches. Christ in salvation, in everything that is granted to you, the riches in Christ, are giving according to his riches, not out of his riches. Because his, according to his riches is unfathomable, unending, never-ending. Got it? It's out of that man does, it's according to that Christ does. That's what you have in Christ. That's your position in him. You with me? I can give you a ton of scriptures that talks about the riches of Christ. For the sake of time, I won't be able to do that. All through Ephesians, Romans 2, Romans 11, 1 Timothy 6, Colossians 2, Colossians 3, Hebrews 11. I didn't expect you to write that down. You can listen on, the web, you can listen on our website later this week. One thing that will inhibit you from these riches, you guys, from all that you have in Christ, there's only one thing that will inhibit those riches, and it's sin. It's sin. In the form of pride, self-ambition, self-glory, it all make you a spiritual beggar. The Corinthian church had this problem. You know, it's been said of the Corinthian church that they never lost their bank account, they just lost their checkbook. The resources were there, but they lost all access because of sin, pride, arrogance, and the like. It was all there. See, grace does not eliminate God's moral law, right, for us as believers. Grace does not eliminate His moral law. But it gives us the spiritual resources to obey. You have the ability, I have the ability in Christ to uphold His perfect law, right? Because heaven and earth will pass away, right? Only after the law is perfectly fulfilled, and it's yet to be perfectly fulfilled. He fulfilled it once and for all, but we're the body of Christ, one in Him. We continue to uphold it, amen? Because we have the power within. If you're a believer, the only thing that will squish that power and grieving of the Holy Spirit is sin. Remember Revelation 3.15, the church of Laodicea? Revelation 3.15, just mark it down. Jesus said, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Here's the reason why. Because you say, I'm rich and I've become wealthy. And I have need of nothing. Do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Sad, isn't it? We fall into that boat many times. Oftentimes Christians are defeated, they're hopeless, they're unhappy, they're doubtful, they're fearful, and they're unengaging. They don't engage themselves because of the one thing that will hinder you, and that's sin. Because you've been saved from it. You've been freed from it. Therefore, why do we continue to walk in it? Amen? See, Paul, you guys was totally understanding of this grace that was given to him, and he served in humility. In humility. And that takes us to verse 9. Also to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, it says this fellowship. This is not the kind of fellowship that we're going to have this afternoon, which is koinonia fellowship, sharing and being together and all that. This is a word that's used for dispensation, as we looked at earlier. Stewardship. It's a stewardship. So all of this vertical power given to us in verse 8 is relinquished in us and through us like this, horizontally now to work within us. You got it? Is we're one with him. Stewards of the mystery. In the church age, that's us. We serve one another, right? A body, one in Christ. 
leading us to verse 10. Now, here is the purpose of the whole mystery. Write this down. Verse 10 is the purpose of the whole entire mystery that we've been studying. Verse 10. All to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, look at this, by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Here we have the manifold wisdom of God being made known to the angels, both fallen and unfallen. Principalities and powers all throughout Scripture is referred to as ranks of angels. You say, what does angels have to do with the church? You know what angels' main role and function is? To praise and worship God. To praise and worship God. And God by his church, and we submitting to his authority, give reason when we're functioning properly to give reason for the angels to glorify God. That's the purpose of the mystery. That's the purpose that we're living out today. Sinners saved by grace, working with one another according to giftedness in our proper places for his glory. The angels worship God. He gets the glory. Salvation, one purpose. Christianity is not an end in of itself. It's not even a means to an end. The ultimate end, you know what it is? It's not to make you feel good. It's to bring glory to God, period. Come on, somebody. To bring glory to God, period. The greatest thing that glorifies God is salvation. Salvation. Christ is the creator of all things, all principalities and powers. God created the angels, the fallen ones and the unfallen ones. The fallen ones fell because they chose to fall. Look at Colossians 1.16. Just listen to it. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. All things were made for him and by him, guys. See, the angels are very aware of the power of God in creation, right? God spoke, the universe came into existence, right? They see his power unleashed throughout history. But this is what Paul calls the manifold wisdom of God. It carries the idea of multicolored, many-colored, suggesting the beauty and variety of God's wisdom within the church. You follow me? This is awesome. You've got to follow this. This is our main point. Salvation in chapter 1, verse 12, talking about the guarantee of our inheritance, is all to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, verse 12, that we trusted in Christ, is all for the sake of the praise of His glory. Salvation is for the praise of His glory. See, Satan knows the Bible. Did you know that? He knows it very well. Knew the Old Testament scripture. He knew that the Savior would come. He knew when he would come. He knew how he would come. He knew where he would come. He knows it. He even understood why he would come as far as redemption is concerned. He knew why. But nowhere in the Old Testament would Satan be able to find the prophecies concerning the church and this mystery that he's unveiling for us. Gentiles being united as one. You being positionally righteous in Christ. He had no concept of the far-reaching results of the cross. No idea. Satan has demons. He and the demons hate Christ. They attempt to destroy it. And, and this is how the fallen angels glorify God. They attempt to destroy the church, but as we read in Matthew 16, guess what? They can't. The gates of Hades will not prevail against what? His church. Cannot. It's impossible. Here's the point. Angels are always checking on God's church. They're always checking on the church. So you can mark these down. The mysteries of the Gospels and, and, and the, method, the, the methods of man's salvation in 1 Peter 1.12, he says, To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us, who are ministering the things which now have been reported to you, through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Now, we've learned that angels can't understand grace, the unfallen ones, right? Because they are not in need of it. 
Unfallen angels are unredeemable. They rebelled out of holy perfection. Unredeemable. Hell was created for them. So there's three groups of learners in that in that first Peter one, twelve, the apostles, the church, and the angels. The conversion of sinners is a joy to the angels. In Luke fifteen ten it says, Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When someone truly repents, the angels of heaven rejoice. As soon as someone's converted, there's ministering agents given to that individual to watch over them until God takes them home. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they all not ministering spirits, spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Hebrews 1, 14. The angels also look into the ladies. Angels look at the ladies in the church. 1 Corinthians 11.10. And you know what he's looking into? He's looking into their submissive role within the church. Now, if you have a problem with the whole submission issue, as far as the church goes, you probably allowed the culture to invade your thinking. 1 Corinthians 11.10 says, For this reason, the women ought to have a symbol of authority on their head because of the angels who are watching. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman. Man is not independent of woman. Amen? Nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Now, in the world it might be like that, right? But not in the Lord. For as woman came from man, from the side, even so man comes out of the woman. There'd be no man sitting here if it wasn't for a woman giving birth to you. But all things are from God. Paul was addressing the issue of submission within the church. Because a lot of the Corinthian church, there was a lot of rebellion within that church. And a lot of the women were literally running around shaving their heads, bare-breasted, and they were going out sticking pigs and stuff. Just bizarre type of things, which is a real macho type of thing. This symbol of authority, the head being covered, was just that. It was a symbol. Now, we don't have that symbol today in our culture, right? It wasn't the point that it's focused on the symbol of submission, but submission itself. So angels look into that. Men and women, are we one in Christ? But we have distinct roles, don't we? we that's why elders are called to be men, and they must be able to teach. And that's why women are not to teach men. God ordained it. The culture fights against it, but the culture has invaded the church today. That's the problem. So angels look into this as well. See, the Lord's not concerned with what the culture accepts or doesn't accept. Amen? Distinct roles, one in Christ. When the angels look down at the church and they see harmony within those distinct roles, what does it give them reason to do? Praise God. But let's say if women, as in the Corinthian church, want to come in and fight to usurp authority over men, does it bring glory to God? No, therefore they have no reason to praise Him for what the church is doing in that regard. Those are just some ways in which the angels look into the church. That's the purpose of the mystery. The proper, effective functioning of the body, us, uniquely gifted, one to another. And if we step out of doing this in the power of God, we're going to do it in the power of our... It's going to cause dissension. And it pulls away all the praise and all the glory that is deserving of God alone. You see the purpose of the mystery being unfolded for its greater purpose is to bring glory to God. Angels looking into the church. They look into the uh, eldership, the leadership of the church in 1 Timothy 5.21. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things. And then the context is talking about determines a man, determining a man's suitability for the eldership as far as discipline within that group. Here's the point to this. Angels are looking into the whole operation of the church, you guys. And if we step out of our distinct roles, the angels don't glorify God. And we're not glorifying God. That leads us to verse 11. We're wrapping up. Again, verse 10. To the intent, here's the purpose, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by, by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. When a church is what it's supposed to be, simply bottom line, the angels glorify God. All according to God's eternal purpose. Planned before the foundation of the earth. Now, if you can't get your Christian life together for the sake of yourself, if you have trouble getting your Christian life together for the sake of one another, I encourage you today and to give you an exhortation. Get your Christian life together for the sake of the angels so they can give glory to God. Because the ultimate purpose of your Christian life and Christ in you being revealed to one another and to this lost culture is to bring glory to God. 
because the angels are looking in on your very life. And our very lives is a corporate body of one with distinct roles to function as one. You don't give an offensive lineman the football and put him in a halfback spot, right? Is he going to gain a couple thousand yards a year? No. He's a lineman because he's big. He belongs in the line. A halfback is given the role of a halfback because the dude can run and he can juke people. Right? We've been given distinct roles and it all brings glory to God when we function together as one, understanding your position in Christ. And then verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. That's Christ. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points was tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, we can come what? Boldly before the throne of what? Grace. In time of weakness. To receive mercy and grace. And we learned last week or the week before that this... that. This ability to come boldly to the throne is not just because you all of a sudden have the ability to roll in on God on His throne. It's because of proper what? Introduction. Jesus is our introducer. He introduces us to the Father. You only have access to the throne. I only have access to the Holy of Holies because of our introducer, the one who leads us into the very presence of God the Father. Amen? But we can do it with boldness. You slip, you fall, here's your position, what happens to it? Stays the same. When you mess up in your practice, repent. Confess and repent. Leave it. Leave it. Whatever it is, and start moving your practice towards your position which is unchanging. In other words, start living from here. Start living from here. That's who you are. And it's because of him that we have this boldness. Now imagine as we wrap up what it would have been like for a Jew to hear that Gentiles had this type of access. Think of the Holy of Holies. The high priest went in how many times? Once a year. To atone and confess for his sins and the sins of the nation of Israel. When Christ died on the cross, that temple to the Holy of Holies was torn asunder from top to bottom, revealing that we all have divine access by his grace. Access by grace. Isn't that great? 2.18, it's all because of one thing. Verse Chapter 2, verse 18. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. That's our introducer, Jesus Christ. Only by proper introduction does anyone enter into the throne room of grace. And then Paul concludes in verse 13. Therefore, because of all of this divine truth, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. Now, as Paul was revealing all this great mystery, and he got chained up five years before, and he was chained up and he was writing this letter, they were feeling sorry for him. Felt bad for him. And he was in jail for teaching the very mysteries of Christ. And this is an encouragement to you. You can be right in the center of God's will, and your life could seemingly be falling apart. Just kind of like Joseph, you remember? He was doing the right thing and he got jailed for it. But God worked that out over time, didn't he? Be encouraged in that. Be encouraged in the difficult times. Paul answers, look, I declare these mysteries to you. It is for the glory of God. It's for your spiritual growth. And you know what he says? It's all worth it. Because he was a minister who was empowered by the Spirit and yielded himself to the Spirit to do the ministry that God had called him to, you see? So where's your perspective? Where's your perspective in your life today and in the ministry that God has for you? So here we see Paul's servant heart. Are you willing to spend and be spent for Jesus Christ? That's the question for us today. Here's the application. Are you willing to be spent? Are you willing to spend for the glory of God? To get God's message to God's people to go, to talk, to teach, to preach, to reach the lost with the gospel of which has to be lived out from your life. Amen? Lived out. Once it's lived out, oh, they'll see a difference and they'll want to know truth. Because you hold the keys to the kingdom. You hold the truth. Amen? So, God had a secret, didn't he? But it's not a secret anymore. If you understand your position in Christ, you guys, you can sum it up with this. If you understand your position in Christ, live up to it. Live up to it. 
live up to your position in the power of God Almighty who gave the mystery and revealed the mystery will be lived out and flow out through you and through me. And we will function as a church that brings glory to God. The angels will rejoice. God is glorified. You're edified. You're built up in the faith. It gives you an increased ability to walk by faith as you obey. Come on, somebody. When you step out by faith and you see God empower the situation, He empowers you, it's going to increase your faith. And we walk... And we minister, we exhort, and we edify one another in our proper, distinct roles within the body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious secret that was imparted to Paul, imparted to the Gentiles, imparted to the angels. And Lord, if indeed, if it was important to all of them, it certainly ought to be important to us. And I want to pray for this church and thank you for this gathering today. Even with an air conditioner that's not working properly, Lord, we want to thank you for your grace on our lives. And I pray that we would have a hunger and a desire to learn your word and to live it out by the power granted to us, by the one who indwells us, by the one who's invaded our life, the Holy Spirit. And Lord, when we fall into places of weakness, of yielding to our sinful selves, God Almighty, convict us that we will function effectively and properly within the body so that the angels have reason and purpose to glorify you through the finished work of your Son. Lord, may we remember and recall these glorious truths as we continue to move next week into Paul's prayer, which he finally gets to, and indeed we would understand this truth. And I pray for this church. You'd open the eyes of our understanding to understand your divine truth imparted to us individually so that we can function as an effective body of believers. Thank you, Lord, for our visitors here today, and I pray for the guys at Campus Crusade for Christ, the ladies and the men who are serving together, that you bless them upon above measure as they serve as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, from a brother Robert Russell who's here in a wheelchair today, Lord, we pray for your continued healing hand and your grace to abound upon he and his wife, Lord, as they move through this very discouraging time of which, Lord, has brought great encouragement today as they're here together for the first time after nine months in fellowship with the brethren. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. We pray for a blessed time of fellowship this afternoon as we get to know one another better so that we can function more effectively as a body of believers. For your glory, in Jesus Christ's name, amen.